episode 77. Today, I speak with Jeff Scott from the DHS Group. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. One arguably underappreciated stakeholder in the healthcare industry is employers. About half of insured Americans get their healthcare coverage from their employers. This is probably not a, a shocker. But did you know that for larger companies, the employer can actually be the insurance company? In other words, the employer might use an, in quotes, regular insurance company like, you know, United Healthcare or Aetna as an administrator, but it's the employer itself who is actually paying the bills and assuming the risk. This fact comes with a whole host of ramifications and, and opportunities that I speak about today with Jeff Scott from the DHS Group. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Jeff. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. DHS Group, you work with companies and health plans to achieve better health outcomes through population science and member engagement tools. That is the headline on your website. Right. Could you unpack that a little bit? What does that mean exactly? Sure. The mission of, of DHS Group, and, and I should explain, DHS stands for Dynamic Health Strategies. It was a name that was chosen when the company was founded. And the original mission of the company was to be consultants to large health plans and large self-funded employers uh, as it related to their population health. And so we employ a series of folks that are masters of population health science, are actually PhDs as well. And so it started as this consulting business, and we had very good success helping companies pinpoint the issues within the health of their population. And our, our clients said, hey, this is great. We'd love to have better access to our own data. And so the company embarked on building a, a data and analytics platform and a, and a BI tool that allows self-funded companies and, and large health plans to drill into their own information. Let's talk about self-funded companies for a moment, because I do feel like that is a very fundamental part of our healthcare system, which very few people have put a finger on. When you say self-funded company, what do you mean by that? Self-funded means that the company is totally bearing the risk of their own health insurance. And so they'll be using a third-party administrator or a large insurance carrier as maybe a, an, an ASO you know, an administrative service organization, and all that the carrier or the TPA would be doing in that instance would be helping them administer the program and process payments and link claims with payments and uh, pass out ID cards and all those types of things. But at the end of the day, the bank account that's getting hit to pay the bill belongs to the company. As such, you know, since the company's bearing the, the bulk of the risk, they want to be able to pay more attention to the health of their population, take a look at high cost claimants, understand where there's trends that they might want to reverse because they know it's going to you know, lead to higher costs for them down the road. And since they are taking the, the bulk of the risk, they're more interested in doing that. And that's something that really, I have to say, was very surprising and curious to me. I, I remember you know, back in the day when I first got into this industry, 
realizing that despite the fact that, you know, an employee's medical card might say Aetna or Cigna or United Healthcare on it, that as you just said, the only thing that United Healthcare or Aetna or Cigna were, were providing was the administrative services that my real insurance carrier or the entity that was really responsible for paying for my healthcare was the employer. Right. It's a it's it is interesting and a large a large portion, an overwhelming portion is with say five thousand employees and above are self-funded. What we found is that companies that are below five thousand employees, and particularly those in the SMB space, you know, from 50 employees to to 1,000, and then the huge, huge portion of companies that are, you know, below 50 employees, you know, cannot enjoy, you know, the savings that come along with being self-funded. And so there's this massive part of the market that we think, you know, from a wellness and employee health engagement standpoint is still largely untapped because it's tough to get the wellness tools to those companies just by pure nature that they don't have the funding or the budget to support them. And when we started, you know, I was talking about how DHS was born out of the population, you know, health management side. What we eventually realized is that just telling our member companies what was wrong with the population wasn't enough. We needed to give them tools that would allow them to engage their member employees to affect behavior change such that they would, you know, get healthier on their own. And that's where, you know, you see a whole swath of wellness solutions flooding the market. And where we think we're unique and why our tagline is, you know, essentially that we help companies save money by com combining uh, population health science and member health engagement tools is because we think it's very powerful to, to be able to look at your data, pinpoint where the issues are, figure out what proactive things you can do to help members in your population get healthier, but then also give them the tools to be aware of what their potential health issues might be and then the ways in which they can affect themselves to be healthier. And I can really see if you are a self-funded, you know, self-insured employer, why this would matter. Because if at the end of the day, you're responsible for making sure that your employees have better healthcare outcomes, and to be very cynical here, the lowest healthcare costs, you know, because the one thing that that strikes me about this whole affair is that if you have an employer funded or employer sponsored healthcare which is basically you know i was just looking at something that said 154 million americans have their insurance provided to them through their employer so in some way shape or form the employers are responsible for employee health or at least responsible for paying for it so in a direct way i suppose if the employer is self funded but in an indirect way even if they're not there is a definite drive to curb healthcare spending with employers. How engaged do you think that the smaller employers are in this? I know you said that there's kind of a direct line to the the larger employers, but do you see that smaller employers have a horse in this race? Yeah, it, I th they absolutely do. It's just it's uh, they have right now. It seems like they have less tools to be able to affect it. And I want to go back to to something you said about. Employers definitely are incented and care about the overall cost of the program. The other thing that's interesting is as more and more employer-sponsored plans move to having consumers and the members of the company be more engaged in their own health care through having high deductible plans where it's more consumer-driven health care, 
employers are very keen on giving their employees the tools to manage their healthcare because they know and they feel very much from their employees that employees now have more skin in the game, which means more is coming out of their own pocket. So even while costs are increasing for the employer, they're trying to shift more of it to the consumer and you've got to give them the tools to be able to to manage their own health. And so what's interesting is you start to find that employers are even looking at it not just as an as health engagement, but just as an engagement tool period and a in a way that they can let their employees know that they do care. It's not they're not just pushing more cost to them or more out of pocket expenses to them. They are trying to give them the tools to manage it for themselves and you know collectively for the company. So you know tying that back then to the to the smaller employers you know, a lot of small employers buy their health insurance through big buying groups, you know, because from an underwriting standpoint, it's too, you, you can't take a 50 person population and, and effectively underwrite it. You've got to look at the metropolitan area and these big buying groups will take sort of the averages of, you know, companies in that area. And that's how they effectively price insurance. And I, I grossly oversimplified that, but, but that's sort of how it works. So they potentially, you know, have a little bit less to worry about because if the members of their own company aren't getting healthier, they're still sort of bound by the underwriting of what's going on in that major metropolitan area. So I'm not saying that they're incented to care less because that's not what we found. They just care about something slightly different. And what they care about is that their employees are taken care of that their employees, as they're, like I said, being pushed to more high deductible plans, know that the employer cares about them and is offering tools that they can, you know, get up moving and get more engaged in their healthcare and be able to manage results and be able to look at their trend lines and all those sorts of good things. And as an employer of, let's just say, less than 5,000 people, I can tell you that you're absolutely right. Although I would also have to say that it is a situation where, as an employer, I mean, I, I personally feel completely powerless relative to the the premiums. I mean, I see premiums go up from from the employer perspective 30 or 40 percent a year. I, I mean, if you think about that as you know, just as an individual, you know, you're just minding your own business. And like, if your rent just randomly goes up 30 or 40 percent, right. or that's right. crazy talk. That is makes it very difficult to right. not only run a business, but also care for employees in, in any sort of reasonable way. But I got a right. question for you, Jeff. So I'm kind of triangulating on three points right now. One of them is this. I had a conversation with Dave Chase, who was a guest. He was on episode 74 of the podcast. One of the things that he says is that it is his belief that employers will be one of the single biggest driving forces driving healthcare transformation. He believes that for too long, employers have been paying too much and getting too little. So on one hand, I've got that point triangulating. On another point, Exactly like you just said, I was looking at something that said that for employees, premiums have gone up something like 80 percent over the past 10 years or something. You know, so so premiums are significantly going up on the employee side. And on the last side, there's been a lot of hullabaloo lately relative to privacy, employee privacy. For example, I think in 2014, the president of AOL had a huge gaffe because he started complaining about how much two preemies cost. <laughs> and then Penn State had a similar issue where they were requiring all of their employees to fill out questionnaires 
where they had to answer health-related questions and if they didn't answer questions. And one of the questions was, are you planning to get pregnant next year? And another one, there were some mental health questions in there. And if you didn't answer those questions, your health premiums, you know, the premiums that the employee was responsible for went up significantly. It was something like $1,200 a year. You know, so you've got these sort of three forces that are pressing against each other. How do you negotiate those forces? Right. Yeah. No, those are all... (laughs) all three very uh, big, big topics. And when we're talking with, with our clients, what's sort of interesting is that the three things you just mentioned, they're very worried about. They might be worried about them in different ways, depending on the company. I'll sort of attack them, I, I guess, in, in the order that you gave me. I, I think that employers are the biggest driving force to change. The reason I think they're the biggest driving force for, for healthcare change is because they have the most skin in the game. And because they have direct access to the employees. And so they're creating a community where people live most of their lives you know, at work and they're interacting with the company. They're interacting with the company's intranet or website, or that's their main source of information is coming from the employer. And because they're buying, essentially, at least right now, most folks are buying their insurance through their employer we think that the employer has tremendous power. And, and even in fact, in, in some audiences or in some centers of influence that I'm a part of, there's definite efforts around, I don't want to say trying to wake up employers, but trying to get employers to understand that they really can help control the future, which will help with their own costs, but then also help for the costs of, of their own employees. Then you take that sort of same conundrum to the employee side where they are dealing with, um, okay, my premium went up, and there's more out of pocket for me, question mark. It's the interesting thing is that, you know, with, with this excise tax that it's now been pushed out to, to roll out in 2020, excise tax, which says if an employer has to pay, you know, $10,200 some odd change of a premium for a specific plan on an employee, they're going to charge excise tax for every dollar spent over that $10,200. It's something like 40%. So they're calling that quote, the Cadillac tax. You know, so regulation is driving folks to a higher deductible plan, you know, because employers basically have a couple of options to get to get out of the excise tax. And the biggest one is to, to lower premiums by going to high deductible plans, which then makes consumers have more out-of-pocket expense. But at the same time, even for those high deductible plans, you know, the, the premiums are creeping up as just the overall cost of healthcare continues continues to rise. And so it does become this weird diagram where it's 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 like you can't pull all the levers at the same time in order to make an effective change. Employers are very worried about the fact that they do have to push more costs to their employees, while at the same time they're worried about the excise tax. It's almost <laughs> like, what do you do? And the, you know, the conventional thinking, um, even though it's, and this is where it sort of gets to the point where people say, well, you can't really prove out an ROI. It's very, uh, you know, early and it's very tough to measure, but we all know. And if you look at like what the American Heart Association says, it's being inactive and just very basic wellness things are now a bigger killer than smoking is. People know that you've got to, you've got to be looking at the healthier population. You've got to be doing wellness programs in order to to get people more engaged in their own health, you know, in order to affect long-term change. But then the third thing, what, remind me again what the third thing was? Privacy. Oh, privacy, right. So then now you're saying, okay, we're going to roll out these wellness programs. We're going to do population health analytics. And all of a sudden employees start going, hey, wait a second. I don't want 
people knowing, you know, that I have this chronic disease or I don't, that shouldn't affect, you know, my ability to be employed or I don't feel comfortable or, you know, you do have comments like you mentioned with uh, senior management making a gaffe and, and saying something like that. Sort of the, the truth of the matter is if you're a self-funded employer, you are entitled to have access to the data on your members. Now, HIPAA, of course, HIPAA privacy requires that there be a plan administrator with inside the self-funded company. And they take, I mean, it's very serious. It's, you know, they're, it's all in like, they sit in locked rooms. They, there's very specific protocols around who can access the data, et cetera. But the plan administrator should be the only person with access to the, to that information. It's not, it's not like Jeff's manager knows that Jeff has a chronic illness. He doesn't have any idea what my wellness score is or my biometrics or anything like that. It gets, it runs a little rampant in the company where people think, oh, it's big brother, you know, seeing what I'm doing. The truth is they already know um, because if they're a self-funded employer, they're entitled to the information. So what we try to coach companies on is very basic HIPAA privacy rules. And there's a set of best practices, like you're not going to shoot out an email to your employees that say, since you're in a group of diabetics, you know, we thought we'd tell you the, you know, that doesn't happen. It's, it's all very, the communications are all limited to inside the portal. We think that that's the best practice. So if I'm Jeff and I'm a diabetic and I'm logging in, I'm getting very specific content pushed to me because I'm a diabetic and I'm, I'm managing my disease, you know, through the, through the portal, but nobody in the company is, is, you know, walking down the hall knowing that, that that's the case, except for these plan administrators. It is, I know it's a long way to answer your question, but it is a three-headed monster in that, you know, it's from the employer standpoint, it's a catch-22 because they need to push more costs to the employee and they need the employee to manage their their health uh, a, a little better, which requires them to push data to them, which then makes the employee think, well, hey, my premium, my out-of-pocket and the fact that you know my data, uh, you know, is not an ideal situation. It is a tough thing to, to navigate, and a lot of companies do it successfully, you know, thinking through sort of the carrot and the stick approach, which is, you know, do you, do you penalize people for not doing certain activities, or do you incent them to do certain activities? And then you start getting into, is it an extrinsic behavior change or an intrinsic behavior change? And we've seen different scenarios with that with our, with our clients, and uh, we're fortunate that we have this great team of the folks that really understand the medical and behavioral side of the science of all this. You have guys like me who are sales folks and strategists and software guys, and we understand how to make it simple and create really nice tools. Why I, I think our company is different, and there's a lot of great companies out there that can do, do sort of similar things, is that we have we have that depth and breadth of, of the medical and behavioral expertise and the you know HIPAA compliance expertise as well. I definitely want to circle around to the unique experience that the DHS group has, but I do want to clarify one point, which I think is, is very important. When you say plan administrator, is this someone at the, the company who has been identified as the one or two individuals that have access to, to private health information? Or are you talking at this point about the third party administrator, i.e., you know, the United Healthcare that's administering benefits? I was speaking to the person at the company. Okay. So someone at the company is the plan administrator, is is managing, you know, a set of reserve funds that are required by ERISA that says you've got to hold this much again in your bank account basically to cover the cost, et cetera. 
that they, there's someone at the company is the plan administrator. Okay. Yes. And and the, those people are kind of, they have firewalled information that only they have access to. It's not like this information is disseminated throughout the, the rank and file. There's like two people. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. Okay. There's, there's a very, very, very strict set of HIPAA privacy guidelines surrounding it, which is good. All right. So let's talk about DHS. Say I am the benefits administrator at a, you know, a company with, let's just take it from the more than 5,000 people size, and I hire the DHS group. How's my day different or or how's my life better? The reason that it's your life is better is because you have access to tools right on your desktop that are easy to use, easy to disseminate. Um, employees find fun and engaging, you know, as it relates to the to the member engagement and wellness side. Because a lot of what we found when we talked to, to folks in an HR vertical, and usually that includes benefits folks as well, managing, you know, health and wellness generally is not always a full-time job. They've got other duties to attend to. Sometimes in some companies, depending on the size, they're not experts in these things. They don't have time to just figure out, okay, what program should I be deploying and to whom and where do I even start? And so you need very simple, basic tools that are slightly prepackaged that you can customize to a degree, but are slightly prepackaged that can be pushed out to employees. On the population health management side, a lot of folks, they're, they're not data, health and data experts. So they have no idea how to go in and say, well, I want to be able to look in Albany, how many chronic diseases I have and I need to be able to understand how to pull that data and do something with it. And our tools will give you prepackaged reports that tell you, okay, here are the top three things that you could do in the next quarter that would actually move your bottom line. And here's the way we think it would move the bottom line. Now, we can't guarantee an ROI and those types of things, but we can say this is how much it's costing you based on the claims information that we're aggregating and then the algorithms that we have built on top are telling us these are the things that you ought to be doing. Here's how you do them and here's the tool to push it out to the employees. So we just try to make it much more simple for HR uh, and the benefits folks to, to manage those programs. Give me an example of one, you know, you had said here are three issues or three huge cost drivers that we've detected and here's three things you can do about them. What is just one example? Like what is one big cost driver and one thing you can do about it? One good example would be a, a, an, an overly abundant population of diabetics and maybe you're outside of a benchmark. And so we'll, we'll work with you to figure out, okay, you're in a specific industry, you're in a specific geography. How does that benchmark against some other set of population and are you above or below that? And if it's above and we say, wow, you've got a healthy number of type 2 diabetics, there's very specific content, there's very specific programs that can be then pushed to those you know, individuals. And we might say, based on what we saw from your claims information and the, you know, the algorithms told us, that's your highest cost lever. So if you could do something to affect that and get those people to, to manage their chronic illness more effectively... We think that that's a pretty big opportunity for you. Basically, what you've got is you've got data, benchmark data across an, an industry or for a, a specific right. type of patient population. And you're looking at it going, high benefit administrator, I just want to let you know that for most companies, their cost is X. And for you, your cost is X plus. Correct. So you have an opportunity here. 
Correct. And now we've, we've been talking a lot about deep population health science and chronic diseases. The, a, a very simple version would be, and something that we haven't talked about that's unique to DHS is we acquired last uh, fall a fitness activity and program challenge company called Movable, which essentially allows you to connect a Fitbit or a Garmin or any major manufacturer you know, device to the platform and to run very simple, out-of-the-box challenges and programs across your organization. So these would be things like, hey, you ought to walk 10,000 steps a day, and you're in a, you're in a month-and-a-half challenge with your team against another team. We have a very simple platform that allows uh, benefits or HR individual to administer that type of program. That's a very simple type of program. There's one version of the world that's like, you've got a lot of folks with chronic diseases. We're going to give them a, a tool that's going to help push specific program to them. But a very simple way to get started, if you, if you didn't want to go into deep analytics or you didn't want to do uh, the population health pieces, you could just sign up and start running programs and activity challenges through what we call, quote, the MOVE platform. And people who already have a device can use their can sync their devices. If they have an app that tracks movement, they can sync those those apps. And then we have our own low cost uh, wearable fitness device uh, that's wrist worn that that we can offer as well. And I bring that up just to say what's what's interesting is that we have a very modular approach. So it's it's somewhat a la carte. You could take a baby step, and this is where we really get engaged with the smaller companies who don't have a ton of budget. Because we can say, hey, you can start with Move. We can get your folks up and running, just getting them active, getting them aware that they're only walking so many steps a day. And let's let's increase that step one before we get into these very specific programs around chronic illness and, and whatnot. So that would be another example of how we would make their life easier and uh, an example of a program. And that also circles back to what you had brought up before, which is the intrinsic, extrinsic, and the carrot versus stick approach. So obviously, this is this is a carrot. Is there any learnings that an employer might be able to take away f- from what you've done relative to what works there? You sure. know, when you're doing the, these recommendations, do you offer you know one stick program, one carrot program, and then? one gamification. <laughs> yeah, no, I, yeah, we, you know, this is a tough one. Um, and, and what's interesting is, be, is that we've seen both extremes and everything in between. And so on one extreme, I mean, we've actually had, we actually had a client say, I do want to identify and penalize those, those folks that don't do this very specific things. And they're going to pay a higher rate than those that do. And the the things that they might be requiring them to do is get a biometric screening. Maybe it would be to participate in a fitness challenge at least once a quarter or something like that. We've seen people do that. And where I'll, where I'll say in quotes that it's effective is that it was effective in helping the employer maybe reduce their overall cost because they actually did get people to do it because they're like, well, we grudgingly have to do these things. That's not my preferred or recommended approach. However, it's up to the company. You know, we're just giving them the tools and the best practices. Our best practice recommendation is that you that it is a care approach. You know, you do try to make it fun for employees. We've found that just to be the most successful, and we found that that's actually what increases behavior change. So people, when in, either incented with something small, and and something small might be, hey, if you do these things this year. We're going to give you X amount of dollars into your HSA. Or I've seen companies say, if you do these things, we're going to give you a couple extra days of PTO. 
to use as, as you see fit. And we've found that the adoption rates in those scenarios are, are much higher for people to participate in programs, whether they be managing a chronic illness or just a simple fitness, fitness uh, step challenge. The one thing that you said that really resonated with me earlier in this conversation was that they always say that the clinical setting is is a very difficult place to change outcomes because, you know, what percentage of, of a person's life do they spend in a provider office? I mean, it's correct. You know, is it one percent? I don't know. But employers have such huge access and power really to affect right. change. And I think that partly, too, from a funding standpoint. We've had lots of really great conversations with providers who say, Jeff just walked out of my office and I know he needs to be on a fitness activity program. I'd love to be able to sign him up on your platform and be able to track his activity, but I don't, I can't fund that. Or the the patient themselves at that time, based on, you know, their behavioral thinking is not going to pay for it. That's why employers have such power because if employers can, can roll in a couple extra dollars per month into their over, overall what they're paying for healthcare for a specific employee and give them something to manage their own health, from a funding standpoint too, it, there's more opportunity there because they have some you know, skin in the game. And unfortunately, that's, that's just the reality. And it also pretty much boils down to the pivotal question that this whole industry is struggling with, you know, the value of preventative care right? and being proactive. And, as you know, I'm actually sitting here thinking to myself, they always say that member turnover in, in insurance plans is, is relatively high. I, w- I would also imagine that employee turnover plays into this as well and that employers that have longer employee tenure have far more vested interest to see mm-hmm. the, the long-term health uh, yeah. of their employees. Oh. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of what we've seen is then – in some way, it correlates to the industry they're in and the type of business. So you might have a company that, that employs a lot of young people, seasonal, and they're like, look, we're not, these people are young. They're not even going to be on our payroll for more than you know, a college year. We're not worried about it. Then you've got folks who, who maybe are, they do employ a, a much younger workforce, but they, they know that they're going to be around for for a long time and they they just think it's something they ought to offer their employees because it's the right thing to do or because they think it's you know just it's a perk that they can advertise then there are companies that have aging populations and they're like we are very worried about this for all the reasons you can imagine so we found that it it starts to rear its head through the type of business in the industry and over time we've we've tried to modify our approach with those clients and and uh you know, if we get two clients in a similar industry, we try to share best practices between the two and help our clients that way. So if somebody wants to learn more or contact you, Jeff, where should they head? A very simple uh, place to go would be the website, which is dhsgroup.com, or they can uh, you know, call me directly or, or email me. And your contact deets will be on the Relentless Health Value website. Absolutely. Excellent. I thank you so much for being on the program today, Jeff. Thank you so much, Stacey. This was great. I really enjoyed it. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far. There are over 50 at this point with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. 
Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.